On the night of October 14th, 2003, the Chicago Cubs were five outs away from advancing to the World Series for the first time in 58 years. They were playing the Florida Marlins, and the Marlins had a runner on second with one out. When Luis Castillo hit a fly ball in foul territory down the left field line, and the a Cubs player, Moises Alou, ran over to the stands and reached up with his glove. And as he did, a bunch of fans reached for the ball as well. And one of them was a 26-year-old by the name of Steve Bartman. He deflected the ball from Alou, preventing Alou from catching the second out of the inning. Here's a replay of that play as if it hadn't been played enough. Check this out real quick. Poor Steve Bartman. Many of you know, because of the uh, reaction of Alou, the crowd's cheers turned to boos. And Fox Sports showed the replay over and over again, and the Cubs fans began to turn on Bartman, booing and, and chanting obscenities, throwing beer at him. As you can see, he was wiping his face there. Back on the field, the Cubs came unglued. They gave up a walk and a wild pitch and uh, uh, a hit, and Alex Gonzalez fumbled an easy ground ball that could have been an inning-ending double play. The roof caved in as the Marlins went on to score eight runs, and the Cubs lost the game as well as Game 7 the next night, and the Marlins went on to win the World Series. What's sadder than the Cubs losing, if you're a Cubs fan, is what happened to Bartman and his family afterwards. The next day, the Chicago Sun-Times published his name, the suburb he lived in, and where he worked. And TV crews, believe it or not, camped outside of his house. Reporters hunted down friends, neighbors, even the Little League team he coached. Bartman and his family got death threats, and they went into hiding after that. Can you believe it? Well... Being a sports fan myself, I don't watch a lot of baseball. I watch basketball and football, but I remember this event and hearing this story, many of you do as well, about, about Steve Bartman. And, and I was, as I was thinking on it again, two things came to mind. I think they came to mind to me when I first heard about his story. One was, I wondered what it must have been like to be him and have thousands of Cub fans against me. And then the second thing that immediately came to mind as I thought on the first was, I wouldn't want to be him. I wouldn't want to trade places with him for all the money in the world and have to endure what he had to endure. Well, on a much bigger scale, to a much greater degree, it would have been hard to be in the Apostle Paul's sandals where we are in the book of Acts. We've been learning that he has most of the people in the city of Jerusalem against him. Remember, he had the Jewish Christians who were set against him. They didn't think highly of Paul because they thought that Paul was telling Jewish Christians in other parts of the world after coming to Christ, he thought he was encouraging them to forsake their Jewishness. 
The, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem thought this. He had other non-believing Jews who falsely accused him and wanted him dead and a group of Romans who were holding him captive in their fort, in their barracks, who probably didn't care for Paul all that much either but were doing their best to protect him for their own sakes because Paul was a Roman citizen. And if something happened to him on their watch, under their care, they would have to answer for it. So Paul was not well-liked in Jerusalem. I'm sure it felt as if the, the, the world was against Paul at times, but we're going to learn in our passage today that we're going to look at today how God responds when the world is against his man. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 23. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 35 this morning. And as we study through this passage, there is one thing I hope jumps right out at you, right off the page as we dig in, and that is that though God is not mentioned specifically in this passage of Scripture, He is very much present and very much at work. The providence of God is clearly seen in this passage of Scripture. It reminds me a whole lot of a certain Old Testament book. In this book, the name of God is never mentioned. There's no mention of a Messiah to come, no mention of the Holy Spirit, no mention of Christian doctrine, no doctrine, period, no divine commands, no nothing like that. It's just a simple story in history with no direct theological references at all. Y'all know what book I'm talking about in the Old Testament? What book is it? Esther, very good. Yeah, the book of Esther. God's name is never mentioned in that book. His presence, his existence is not acknowledged at all. And you might be wondering, then why is it in the Bible? The reason why is because in the book of Esther, we have one of the clearest, complete examples of the providential concern and care of God anywhere in all the Bible. And I hope, Lord willing, as we finish Acts, that'll be the next book that we study, the book of Esther. So I'm kind of mentioning it in detail to whet your appetite a little bit, all right? But I believe here in Acts, this passage in Acts 23, 12 through 35, we have another clear example of the providential concern and care of God. Though God is never mentioned, though Christ and the Spirit are never mentioned. Though there are no references to salvation, no doctrine, no instruction whatsoever, we are going to clearly see this morning that God is present. He is caring for, remaining faithful to His apostle in the midst of this difficult situation. When it seems as if the world is against Paul, we're going to learn that God is for him. And folks, that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? And as I tell this narrative to you this morning, tell this story to you, I want you to keep in mind as we look at how God cares for and remains faithful to his apostle here, I want you to know that we serve, you serve, I serve the same God today who is at work in this way for us. We've been singing about it this morning. We're going to hear about it from God's word. So we're going to look at 
the providence of God today in the life of Paul. And before we begin, we need to first explain what is providence? What is that? Well, we learn in God's word and as we observe God's world that he works in one of two ways. He works through miracles and he works through providence. A miracle is when God breaks from the natural process. He disrupts the flow of normal life to accomplish his purposes. And providence is when God works in and through his natural world. John MacArthur said it in this way. Check out this quote. It's a good, good definition of both. He says, a miracle is God violating the natural world to invade it supernaturally. Providence is God supernaturally using the natural world to accomplish his will. We see him work in both ways in Scripture. Though we see him work miraculously, get this though, God primarily works through providence. Though you have him parting the sea and sending angels and healing the lame and, and raising the dead, primarily we read about this person doing this and this person doing that and this, this, and that happening. All sorts of seemingly unrelated events happening, though they're not unrelated, right? To accomplish God's will. That's his providence. It's still supernatural because God is very much at work. It's just him working through natural events, working in and through people in his world that he created to accomplish his purposes. Paul witnessed him doing both in ministry just last week in the verses right before this passage luke tells us that while paul was in the barracks in fort antonia this roman fort in jerusalem jesus stands by paul and tells him audibly take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in jerusalem so you must testify also in rome folks that right there is a miracle the risen Christ stands beside Paul and tells him audibly, you're going to make it to Rome. Just like you've been a witness for me in Jerusalem, you are going to be my witness there. That's a miracle. And in today's passage, we're going to see how the Lord works providentially, how he uses people and works in and through the systems he has in place to get Paul on the road to Rome. Even when he had zealous people who were set against him, wanting to kill him. We're going to talk about that as well. So <clears throat> I want to share this story with you about how God responds when the world is against his man, his disciple, his apostle. And I want you to notice three things here in this story, and this is your outline. I want you to notice there is a plot made to end Paul's life. The plot is discovered and is brought to Paul's attention. And then lastly, I want you to notice the plot is ruined and Paul's life is spared. First, I want you to notice this. There is a plot made to end Paul's life. That's point number one. Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Now, as we have learned over the past few weeks, Paul has escaped the Jewish religious leaders not once, not twice, but three times 
in Jerusalem. Remember, he was warned not to go to Jerusalem because trouble awaited him, but Paul was going to go to bring relief to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. He's told not to go to Jerusalem, but he goes anyways. And when he goes, some of the non-believing Jews falsely accuse Paul of bringing a non-Jewish man by the name of Trophimus into a restricted Jewish-only area of the temple. And they form a mob, they find Paul in the temple, drag him out of the temple, begin to beat on him in the temple courtyard, wanting to kill him. And the Romans rush to Paul's aid, they whisk him away, they're taking him back to their fort, and he asks them in Greek if he can address the crowd in Aramaic, and they let him. So Paul does. He shares about his testimony, how Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. They're listening along until Paul tells them that Jesus commissioned him to go and minister to the Gentiles and share the message of salvation to them. Up to that point, they were listening. Then they wanted to kill Paul again. All the more. They wanted to kill him. So the Romans, they rescue Paul once again. They take him back to their fort. They find out he's a Roman citizen. So they let him address the Jewish religious leaders on the following day. Paul goes out. He's going to share his testimony again. He gets punched in the face. And he knows he's not getting anywhere with them. There's Sadducees and Pharisees in the crowd. So he sides with the Pharisees. He says, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And he begins to talk about the resurrection, which the Sadducees did not believe in. So then the crowd is torn and they get into this violent argument. It turns violent. And the Romans rescue Paul once again because they're afraid he's going to be ripped apart, is what it says. So Paul has been spared three times so far in Jerusalem by the Romans, and ultimately by God, who's at work behind the scenes. And the Jews, we learn here, they make one more attempt on Paul's life while he's in Jerusalem. And notice that this attempt is much more serious and much more thought out than the other three that happened in the heat of the moment. We're told that the next day, the morning after Jesus stood by Paul, told him, take courage, you're going to be my witness in Jerusalem. While Paul is in this fort under the watchful eye of the Romans, we learn that a plot is made by a zealous group of Jews to end Paul's life. We're told that they bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. They were disappointed that they had let Paul slip through their hands so many times that they, they planned this plot to kill Paul. And they were so serious about it that they bound themselves under a curse. They basically said, said this, they said, May God strike us down, or worse, if we eat or drink before killing Paul. They were serious about getting rid of Paul. They wanted him dead, and they thought that if they went through these extremes, they would seal the deal. They said, we will, we will kill him, or God will strike us dead. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. They make a colossal mistake here. You see, they truly believed. They sincerely believed that God was pleased with them. God was on their side. And he was pleased with them making this oath. And by making this oath, they would sort of force God's hand to help them out. They felt as if God was on their side. They were doing the Lord's work by taking the Apostle Paul out. Little did they know that God was on Paul's side. Because Paul was on God's side, right? God sided with Paul. 
favored him and, and, and promised that he was going to make it to Rome, right? Alive, to be a witness for his son there. We're reminded once again, this is a reoccurring theme in the book of Acts. You can be zealous about what you believe, passionate about what you believe, and be wrong about what you believe. We see that over and over again. We do. You can believe something with all your heart, and it could be wrong. The, the zealous Jews in this story were. They just don't know that they were. Notice that at first glance, the odds seem to be in their favor. They have completely devoted themselves to this thing to kill Paul. And it's not just a handful of guys. Luke tells us that more than 40 have made this commitment. And notice how they plan to do it. Look at verses 14 through 15. <clears throat> they went to the chief priest and the elders and said... We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So notice what this group does. They go to the religious leaders, the bigwigs in Jerusalem, and they ask them to do something that is completely corrupt. We get a good idea of the state of things spiritually at this time with the Jews here. They tell these religious leaders that they plan on killing Paul, and they ask them to go to the tribune, to this Roman leader of a thousand Roman soldiers, and lie to him asking him to bring Paul down to them so that they can determine his case more exactly. In other words, tell him you want him to send Paul to you so that you can question him a bit further. And when you do that, we'll be waiting when he makes his way to you and we're going we're gonna to kill him. This is a, a murder plot. And this is meant to be extremely shocking to us, the reader. I mean, imagine if our elders here at this church got together and put out a hit on somebody. Now, I'm hoping that would be shocking to you, right? Yeah. That's what these men are doing. They're religious leaders. And they claim to be doing what they were doing in God's name. Now, let me let you in on a little something. I may be uh, uh, telling you something, well, you should already know. But if you don't, listen. God is not going to ever call for you to violate his word to accomplish his purposes. I've had people tell me before, I need you to pray about this because I feel God's leading me in this way. And I've had to tell them, you know what? I really don't have to pray about that because what you're wanting to do violates God's word. I've got the answer. It's in here, right? So, so you can be sure if something goes against God's word, he doesn't want you to do it. I can guarantee you that, okay? So we see the state of things spiritually with the Jews here at this time because they agree to do it. And it's also interesting, I think, to note the fact that the conspirators, the 40-plus, didn't go pull certain corrupt people aside in, in, in private and whisper this plot to them. They just went to the leaders. They basically advertised a murder. They knew what the state was, the spiritual state was, obviously, of the leadership in Israel at this time. Now, let's think back to last week. I thought we said last week, we read in verse 9 of this chapter, that the Pharisees found no fault in Paul. 
after his statements about being a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees and also sharing his views on the resurrection. So why would they still be in agreement with the Sadducees to have Paul killed? Well, though they sided with Paul concerning his views on the resurrection, listen, they still wanted to kill Paul for the fact that he claimed that the Lord had called for him to go and to minister and share the message of salvation to the Gentiles. I mean, the Pharisees were probably more angry than the Sadducees about that. So they wanted to kill him for that reason. So this plot is made. And it's a smart plot. It's an evil and wicked plot, but it's a smart plot. Now, how does Paul get out of it? Well, simple. He has the Lord on his side, right? He does. In Romans 8, when Paul is explaining the links God has gone through and the great work he has done to save his people, he makes this point. He says, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? No one, right? It's a rhetorical question. No one, no one could stand against us. That's so true, and we see that here. Though it seems as if the world is against Paul as, as he is helpless here, sitting in the barracks, completely clueless of this plot, and though these 40 men have made a serious commitment to have Paul killed, and they got the religious leaders in on it, and, and, and they're, they're on their side, and they have all of these plans and they've thought it out and they've kept it secret. Listen, they have nothing because the Lord is on Paul's side. God is for Paul and he has plans for him to be a witness for Jesus in Rome. That's all Paul needs. That's all he needs. Folks, people can plot and plan all they want to. God will accomplish what he is set to accomplish no matter what. Listen to Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And we see that verse highlighted here in the next few passages of this chapter that we're going to look at. We've looked at the fact that there was a plot made to end Paul's life. Now notice the plot is discovered and brought to Paul's attention. This right here is amazing right here. Tell me God's not at work after reading this verse here, verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister. How many of y'all knew Paul had a nephew before this verse of Scripture? Right? Look. The son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, there's hardly anything mentioned of Paul's family in the Scriptures other than what we have here in Acts 23. Remember, earlier we learned that Paul was born, a Roman citizen, into a family in Tarsus, and that his father was a Pharisee. He was a double, triple legacy Pharisee. He's a son of Pharisees, plural. And here we're told that Paul had a sister who had a son who heard about this ambush, and it seems as if he might have even been told about the plan. And he goes and he lets Paul know. Now, why did they let a member of Paul's family know about the plot? Well, it could have been the case that they didn't know that he was Paul's nephew. That could have been the case. Uh, maybe Paul was cut off from his family after coming to Christ, we don't know for sure, but with dad and granddad being a Pharisee, we know they were pretty zealous people, right? 
So, so we can tell that Paul's family, they were devout. Maybe they didn't, they, they knew that they were, they knew it was his nephew, but they knew there's no way he would tell because they hate Paul. I don't know why, we're not told. But for whatever reason, Paul's nephew hears of this plot, and for whatever reason, he goes and he tells Paul. Then notice what happens. Look at verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions, one of the leaders of a hundred Roman soldiers, and he said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him, Paul's nephew, by the hand. I love that. He, he dropped what he was doing, and he took this young man by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, he took him to a private place, and he said, what is this that you have to tell me? This tribune knew that Paul was someone significant, right? He had seen the way the crowds responded to Paul over the past few days, and then he gets some new information, so he drops what he's doing to hear about this. And Paul's nephew said this, verse 20, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. They're going to examine him again. That's what they're going to say. But do not be persuaded by them. Now, I love how Paul's nephew is telling this commander of a thousand Roman soldiers what to do, right? Don't you love it? It kind of sounds like Paul there. He says, do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So here we have the plot is discovered. The Jewish religious leaders were trying to be as discreet as they could and get this, before they can even send word to the tribune to have him send them Paul, Paul knows of the plot to kill him and he lets the centurion know and the centurion lets the tribune know. Folks, God's all over this. Though he's never mentioned, he's all over this. He is in the midst of of the Jews listening into their plans and plots and is making it known to the Roman leaders before the Jews even carry out the first step. And so this tribune sends this young man away and he tells him not to tell anyone because if word gets out, they'll, they'll just come up with another plot on how to kill Paul because they're deeply committed to this thing, right? We will also discover in the next passage we're going to look at in just a minute that this Roman leader he wants Paul out of town and down the road before anyone realizes that he's gone. He doesn't want anything to happen again to this Roman citizen on his watch while in his care because he's going to have to answer for it. So he tells Paul's nephew to keep things under wraps. So the plot is made, it's discovered, and lastly, notice it's ruined. The plot is ruined, and Paul's life is spared. This too is truly Amazing. Look at verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers. Remember, a centurion was a leader of 100 Roman soldiers, so he gets two together to, to deploy all of their men with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which is about nine in the evening. Verse 24, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. 
Folks, can you see God's providence here? Can you see God's invisible hand at work here? Jesus stands by Paul while in the barracks in this Roman fort, and he basically tells Paul, don't worry, Paul, you're going to Rome. You're going to be my witness there as you have been my witness here in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, 40-plus men are planning to assassinate Paul, and they have a smart plan in place, and they get all the religious leaders on board, but Paul's nephew hears about the plan. He lets Paul know, who lets the centurion know, who lets the tribune know what's going down, and this tribune sends Paul by night with 470 soldiers to Caesarea to see Felix. I mean, do you see God at work here? Felix was the procurator, a a military leader of Judea. So the Roman leader in Jerusalem sends Paul to his superior, Felix, who is the Roman leader of Judea, and he sends Paul with a letter to Felix. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because basically he's just giving Felix a, a recap of what has taken place. But notice he jazzes it up a little bit. I love this in here. Notice, he does it to make himself look better. Look at verse 25. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. So notice here we finally have the name of this tribune. His name is Claudius Lysias. And we don't know anything about him from the history books. All we know is what we have here in Acts 23. And he says to Felix... This man, Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Boy, he's making himself really sound good to his superior, isn't he? Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. Now, notice he conveniently leaves out the fact that he has Paul bound and he was going to flog him before he finds out that he was a Roman citizen. He just sort of leaves that out because that can land him in a world of trouble. Verse 29, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So he explains to Felix why he sends Paul to him. He did so for Paul's own safety, and he lets Felix know that he is going to tell Paul's accusers that they're going to have to go to Caesarea to state their case, why they are against Paul, what they have against him. Look at verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, which was about 35 miles down the road. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with Paul. When, verse 33, when they had come to Caesarea, which was about 60 miles down the road out of harm's way, and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province Paul was from. He wanted to make sure it was in his jurisdiction. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, both Cilicia and and Judea, I looked at this, were considered to be in the domain of Felix, okay? So, so, So Paul's good there. He said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So, Claudius Lysias really gets out from under this thing, which is what he wanted all along. 
And he gets Paul out of harm's way, 60 miles down the road to Felix in Caesarea. And next time we're, we, we gather, next week, we're going to look at what happens to Paul while he is with Felix. But I want you to notice one more thing here. At the end of verse 35, we're told that Paul was kept in Herod's praetorium or palace. Paul stayed in one of Herod's palaces in Caesarea. Man, God is really taking care of his apostle, isn't he? Though God is never mentioned, nothing miraculous happens. I hope you see here, God is all over this thing. He is working supernaturally here in and through his natural world to protect his disciple, to protect his apostle and get him safely on the road to Rome. And I want to end here by just drawing out two things quickly that we see here about God and the way he works in Paul's circumstances here in this passage. One, we see that God is faithful. That's, that's the first lesson here we see about God. God is faithful. He keeps his word. Do you believe that? I see a faithful God here in this passage, don't you? And, and all throughout God's word. He makes a promise in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, and he works supernaturally in his natural world throughout the rest of this story and throughout the rest of the book of Acts to carry out this promise. He is, he is faithful, and he should be trusted. And believers, we serve the same God today. That's what we've been singing about this morning. It's what we talk about all the time in here. We we serve the same God today, and he has made promises to you and to me in his word. And get this, he will make good on his promises. And he can and should be trusted by you and by me regardless of what happens. Second thing we see here is that God is caring. We've been singing about the compassion of God. God is a compassionate and caring God. He cares for his apostle, doesn't he? He loves Paul. He knows exactly what he needs before he needs it. And he lets him know what his enemies are plotting to do before they even do it by an unlikely source. And he works through this chief Roman commander in Jerusalem to provide 470 soldiers to get Paul out of town by night, down the road, and he even provides for him a nice, cozy place to stay in Herod's palace in Caesarea. Do you see how God cares for his servant here? He loves you in this way, believers. He does. He cares for you in this way. There are so many ways God has cared for you and for me, through people, through circumstances. The problem is we often fail to see the blessings of God's providence. We just focus on the things we don't have and the things that are not happening and not what God is doing in and through people and circumstances that he has put into place in our life. He is at work in that way. We've got to open our eyes to it. Now, notice I said here specifically I, I address believers I'm talking about those who are, who are right with God through Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in God's Son alone for your salvation, this message doesn't apply to you yet. 
You have to be a child of God before you can lay hold of the promises of God through his word. You have to belong to God before you can truly be knowledgeable of his love and care and benefit from that. Now, we all benefit from what's called the common grace of God, right? The fact that we're here this morning with breath in our lungs and life in our bones. Maybe God's even allowed for you to prosper a bit, but get this. Whether you're going through difficulty or whether you're prospering in this life, God is clear in his word that those who are not trusting in his son are set against him in their sin. But that can change for you this morning if you would forsake your sin, if you would turn from your sin, if you would make God's son your Lord today, if you would, if you would see your sin, forsake your sin, look to God's son and trust in him. Listen, you can be saved today in these beautiful truths can be applied to you. You can lay hold of these promises. You can, you can live a life of joy no matter the storms, no matter the trials, no matter how good or bad life gets because you're in the hands of a good, awesome, sovereign, loving, caring God. If you've never made that decision, I pray you would right here, right now. Turn from your sin Give over the reins of your life to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray.